And thanks for Justin reading one of the richest texts theologically in what might be the whole of the New Testament, if not only the book of Philippians. That passage that Justin just read stands out as one of the most, one of the clearest early Christian portraits of Jesus and Jesus as God in the flesh. And it gives us a picture of God a God who humbles himself by becoming human, and while he retained the fullness of his deity, he didn't use that power or that deity as something to be used as his own privilege. And, and not using that privilege of deity for Jesus means that like while he was traveling on those long roads with his disciples in between towns and villages, rocky, dusty roads with super archaic sandals, like he didn't secretly turn his shoes into Nike Airs, you know, to make them softer for him. And, and when, when he stopped at night and slept on the ground with his disciples, he didn't wait till they were asleep and then like make the rocks feather pillows. You know, Jesus didn't do that kind of stuff. He didn't use his divinity uh, for his own privilege. And the few times he did use his power to like turn a few fish and bread into, into lots of food, he served other people, and the scriptures, those stories don't even tell us if Jesus actually ate any of it or not, although the Jesus I know, I think, would have eaten with the people, so anyway. But he never did it, like, as a, a way to get ahead in life. He didn't use his power or his deity for his privilege. But not using his divine power as privilege was much more than resisting creature comforts or refusing to do parlor tricks. I mean, how, if I was one of his disciples, I was like, Jesus, do you think you could like, I don't know, make snow on that hillside? So, you know, like I would want him to do tricks. Um, I don't, there's no stories that he does tricks like that on demand. But refusing to use his privilege means that Jesus, God in the flesh, also allowed himself to undergo arrest and beatings and a corrupt trial, mocking and crucifixion, which was a form of execution designed by the Roman state to inflict maximum pain and humiliation. And he did this, the scriptures tell us, to rescue, to save humanity from the consequences of our own rebellion. Jesus made atonement for us, or at one where we are able to uh, come to God freely. And so Paul, who's writing this letter, he's the one who brought this good news of Jesus to the city of Philippi during the first century AD, and he urges those of us who follow Jesus to live like him. So in the face of strife and fears and economic and social insecurity, he encourages the church to keep our eyes on Jesus and to trust Jesus for our, the technical term is justification, our right relatedness to God and for our salvation. That's the new life that we have in the kingdom that is coming. Now last week, if you were here, we saw how Paul invites us to practice the salvation that Jesus gives us. And building on that foundation, through faith in Jesus, we are declared justified, forgiven, new creations, and we can now live out that life in the present. Now, all of this rich theology and really high ethical standards, it can sound a bit idealistic. In fact, there's a way of reading this stuff and teaching this stuff that focuses solely on behavior in the Bible, as if the Bible were somehow some sort of 
like instruction book that we simply read to follow the steps. That's not what it's about at all. What we are reading in Philippians is not a theology book, it's not an instruction manual. This is a real letter from a real man to a real church made up of real people who are having a really hard time in life. How do we as the church live through tough times? Listen to Paul as he corresponds from his prison cell to the church in Philippi. Both prisoner Paul and the Philippians were living through tough times at the writing of this letter. And here's what Paul has to say. I'm gonna ask you to stand again just because it's good for us to, you know, move our bodies, so. I'm just picking up right where Justin left off pretty much, um, starting in verse 14 of chapter two in Philippians and going to the end. Paul says, do thing, all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. And you too, I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not after that of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I did think it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Thank you, Lord, for the real people and real person who wrote this. And I pray that it would have real legs in our lives. So Holy Spirit, open up our minds and our hearts to your word today. Amen. You may be seated. You may notice that as I read that, there's two really distinct sections in that reading. Um, two distinct styles, actually. In verses 14 through 18, Paul gives us instructions about the kind of attitude that's going to help their community um, practice salvation during really hard times. But in the second section, verses 19 through 30, it's much more 
uh, personal in nature. And in this section, Paul is writing like about his common friends that they have, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these two guys that they know. Um, and, and he's writing about how their lives illustrate the commands in the first section. And so we're just going to take these one, two, and of course we'll start with the first one. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I happen to enjoy sports. I've played sports most of my life. My kids play sports. My wife plays sports. I've coached sports. And one of the things that you hear a lot in the world of sports teams is the word chemistry. A lot of people are obsessed about this word chemistry. People throw that word around quite a bit, but in essence, what people generally mean when they're talking about team chemistry is the way that people relate to each other in an organization or on a team. So, on teams with good chemistry, for example, people feel safe and respected. They feel part of the collective. Teams with good chemistry tend to play for each other, lift each other up. They're resilient. They look at the positive and they don't get down on each other for individual mistakes. They hold each other accountable in a healthy way. And when people say that teams have bad chemistry, they usually mean that there's bickering in the locker room, that there's distrust among people, that the team seems more like a bunch of individuals, more than a collective, and that certain personalities tend to dominate or domineer everyone else. Rather than accountability, there's finger-pointing and blaming other people. Now, championship teams or teams with consistently winning programs tend to have what people call good chemistry. And teams that struggle, people say they have bad chemistry. But this is what I find interesting, is you could read a hundred sports psychologists and you would find 50 of them that say good chemistry leads to, to championship teams, and you'd find 50 of them that say championship teams have good chemistry. Does the cart come before the horse or the chicken before the egg? Do teams win because they have good chemistry or do they have good chemistry because they win? Like it's easy to be encouraging and happy and pulling for each other and positive when your team's doing well. If there are strong personalities on winning teams, they're usually hailed as special players um, who play for the team. But if you take that same player with the same attitude and if the team is losing, then all of a sudden the perception is that that person's hard to get along with and selfish. In a way, Paul is talking about chemistry in the church. The gospel had come to Philippi through the ministry of Paul and Timothy and people's lives were literally transformed. You had this community in Philippi of Jewish people and Greek people and Romans and Macedonians, women and men, rich and poor, slave and free. And Team Jesus was formed by people who were blown away by the new life that they experienced in this crazy, weird, diverse community. In those early days, it was easy to get along because everything was so new and so fresh and so exciting. Paul had been arrested in Philippi, but the people rallied and prayed. And Jesus not only spared Paul, but if you remember that story, the jailer there who wasn't a follower of Jesus sees what happens, his mind is blown, and he becomes a follower of Jesus, says, I want my whole family to get baptized. It was so exciting that time in the church in Philippi. That team probably had good chemistry or people would say that. But as what often happens, newness wears off, 
and things were difficult for the Philippians. This time Paul's arrested again, this time on more serious charges and in a city different from Philippi, probably Rome. They were worried about him and they were likely worried about the possibility of what their life as a community would be like if he were to be executed or never come back out of prison. Then there was the inevitable inner conflicts of the church in Philippi. I mean, this stuff just happens when people spend time together, right? Like, someone had to lead the church, for example. Um, well, how do you select those leaders? And how are they doing at their leading? And how, you know, who are those leaders? What sect did they come from? What gender were they? And what was the, all of that was fuel for disagreement in hard times. And if you just imagine this little community in Philippi, you've got social class differences and genders and ethnicities mixing together, which is a beautiful part of the gospel, but it takes effort to work through disagreements over who gets to teach and what foods they're gonna eat together at the church potluck when you've got people from Turkey and people from Israel and people from Rome. Like, whose cuisine do we get tonight, right? Um, These are all things that we know people would would argue over because for them, food meant more than just calories or what tastes good. It was part of their value. They had to figure out their stance on how to participate as the church in the local pagan festivals, or how to work out sexual ethics, or marital fidelity, or, well, pretty much all the same issues that every generation has to work through. And if the Philippian church were a team, they might be perceived as going through a rough patch during the time of this letter. Their coach or star player, however you want to view Paul, was on the bench or injured or out of town, right? And the emperor Nero, at the same time, seemed to have all this power that he was using for his own personal privilege. And Nero was famous for squashing anyone that he perceived as being a threat to his power, including many Jews and Christians. And in the face of all of this hardship, some reports had come to Paul that the chemistry with some of the Philippians had gone bad. There were these factions forming in the church, particularly between two women, Eudia and Syntyche, who we'll read about later in chapter four on another week. And it's in the midst of that hardship that Paul writes, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Let's just pause to state the obvious when you think of all the character issues that you might want to work on in your personal life, where's grumbling on the top of your list? Is that even, (laughs) I'm really bad at grumbling. Um, I've got about 25 other things I could think of before before grumbling. Um, You know, do you ever just say to yourself, I just wish I didn't grumble so much. Um, So what, what is this all about, Paul? I mean, come on, how's this supposed to be relevant to anybody? We'll leave it to Paul, of course, to have some deeper meaning in the words that he uses. This word grumbling was an intentional word choice. Pronounced gongusmon. We just got to say that together because it's so weird. Gongusmon. Yeah, gongusmon. Stop your gongusmoning. Um, that, that word in the Greek is the same word that's used when the people of Israel were grumbling against Moses and God in the wilderness. And if you remember that story, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt under this tyrannical Pharaoh, and working through the leadership of Moses, God rescued the people, he delivered them from slavery, brings them out into the wilderness, 
And, and, he, and he sent them to the wilderness for a time being to teach them how to be his people, to prepare them to enter the promised land. Now, like the Philippians, when Paul and Timothy first came there, the Israelites were full of joy because God had literally just rescued them. But as time goes on, and they had to adjust to day-to-day life, and the newness and the excitement wears off, they begin to complain and to second-guess God and to second-guess Moses. And the Bible says they grumbled. They grumbled. So by using this particular word, Paul is doing two very significant things. Okay, hear me on this. First, he's addressing this group of people in Philippi, many of whom were not ethnically Jewish. Did I say ethically? Ethnically, they were not ethnically Jewish, and they weren't nationally Israeli. And he was saying that these people were all part of the bigger biblical story. In other words, through faith in Jesus, any person is part of the historic people of God. That means part of the people of the promise. All those promises about the future and about the new creation that were so specific to Israel, faith in Jesus opens that up to everybody, which is why we look in even this Bellingham congregation where we we, we all have these different stories of where we come from and where we're going, and we're all included into that. So that's part of what Paul is doing here. He's talking to these Philippians, and he's saying, you're part of this biblical story. The second thing is that notice the difference now between the Exodus story and the Philippian story. In the Exodus, people grumble against Moses because Moses is God's like, God basically says, Moses, you're my representative. You are the guy that I'm gonna speak to you and you speak to them and they speak to you and you speak to me. He's the authorized representative. And so in the Exodus story, When people grumble against Moses, they're grumbling against God. But here in Paul, in the Philippian letter, he adds a qualifying word. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the grammar, like, it includes basically disputing with each other. Do all things without grumbling or disputing with each other. In other words, since all people who follow Christ have the Spirit of God living within them, when we grumble, when we complain, when we cut down or devalue or undercut the dignity of other followers of Jesus, we're grumbling against God. Think about that. That's a powerful statement. That should make us pause. What Paul is really talking about is church going through a hard time, consider your commitment to one another. In the realm of the marriage commitment, the Gottman Institute suggests that nothing, nothing indicates that a marriage is in trouble more than contempt. Gottman says that anger, intimacy issues, job changes, finances, even infidelity, even difference in politics in a marriage, even difference in, re- in religion in a marriage, are all, they, are, they can all be overcome when two people are committed together. But what can almost never be overcome is when one has contempt for the other. If one has blatant apathy 
and disrespect for the other. That's something Gottman says, in all my years, I just can't work with that. People that aren't committed to each other. The marriage example for the church, you might be thinking, that's a stretch, dude. It's actually not, just hear me out. When a person is baptized, they're not only baptized into a relationship with Jesus, but they're baptized into the church. So our baptismal vows, not just like ours at Lettered Street, ours is part of the historical tradition. Like when people are baptized, there are vows to Jesus, but then there is a vow of commitment to walking out our faith in the local church. And just like a marriage, when a person gets baptized and pledges their allegiance to Jesus and to walking out their faith in the local church, everyone out here then stands and has a part in the liturgy too. And they pledge their commitment to walk with the person who has now just been baptized in to the local church. It's commitment. And so grumbling and fostering factions and gossip and negativity about other people, undercutting the character or motives or personhood of others in the church is a recipe for more than bad chemistry. It's destructive to the community and a direct offense against God. And so we're called to walk out that commitment to Jesus and to his community, the church. Like, we gather together regularly and we protect the dignity of one another and we sometimes sacrifice our comforts or our privileges in order to serve one another. And I would add, especially in this climate of Christians and churches behaving badly, we need to hold each other accountable in-house, like, to, to police each other, like, to take good care of each other because uh, there's enough people behaving badly um, in the name of the church out there. And we, all, we do all this, Paul says, so that in the midst of a broken world, we might appear as lights to the world. Now that also is a direct reference to one of the Hebrew scriptures, to Daniel 12.3, where it says that those who are God's people shine, not literally like stars, but in such a way that they lead others to relationship with God. Okay, so Paul's overarching concern of the whole letter and in this passage is not merely that the Philippians or any local church would just get along. That's kind of low bar. But, but to get along for the sake of the gospel. Paul is motivated by the mission, which is to share the love of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, with all the people. And if there's grumbling and infighting, it doesn't just weaken the relationships of people in the church, it's gonna prevent the church from being a light to the world. Another way of saying that is that when we don't live out our commitment of right relatedness with each other, we put up barriers to people outside the church from ever being a part of this community. Like who would wanna join like, a group of people that are bickering with bad chemistry? Now, Paul does more than just give us some commands or a reminder of how things ought to be. He then gives some real-life examples of how this is lived out in the lives of people that the Philippians know. He mentions Timothy. Timothy was Paul's apprentice, his disciple, and he was with Paul when they first visited Philippi and shared the gospel. The Philippians knew Timothy personally. They knew his character was one who was loyal and trustworthy, and most of them... uh, Most of all, they knew Timothy as a person who actually cared for them. 
Paul mentions how he wants to send Timothy to them, and it's interesting that in his, his list of qualifications, he doesn't mention Timothy's credentials as a teacher, right? Which, no doubt, Timothy was a good teacher. Um, he doesn't mention that Timothy is an exceptional, exceptionally devout follower of Jesus, although I can't imagine a guy uh, who wasn't somewhat devout, like, not getting on Paul's nerves, right? But what he does mention is that Timothy, Tim, Timothy is of kindred spirit with Paul and that he genuinely cares for the church, for the Philippians. There were lots of Christian leaders that Paul knew about who were good at preaching or interpreting scripture or good at strategic leadership, but what many lacked and what Timothy seemed to have in spades was care and concern and commitment to the people. That is salvation in practice. We need more salvation in practice. Well, then Paul mentions the second character, Epaphroditus, who was actually a man who was part of the Philippian church. When Paul was arrested, again, likely in Rome, the Philippians sent Epaphroditus with a financial gift and as a gift in himself to come help support Paul. Remember, in the Roman world, prisoners weren't given food or clothing or really any necessities from the state. So a prisoner had to be fed and clothed and visited from, from people from the outside of the system. And so Epaphroditus was that support. As verse 30 says, Epaphroditus risked his life to care for Paul when the Philippians couldn't be there personally. So he becomes this fellow colleague in the gospel with Paul. And more than that, he becomes Paul's trusted friend. You know, sometimes there's a way of reading these letters of thinking of Paul as just like this theologian or just an apostle. But he's a three-dimensional human being who actually had friends and loved them and cared for them. And Epaphroditus was one of these people that he really loved, he really needed. And at some point, Epaphroditus became sick and almost died. The Philippians heard about it, and they were deeply distressed. And knowing that the Philippians were going through a hard time, yet loving his friend and needing his friend's support, Paul decided to put his salvation in practice by humbling himself and emptying himself. You know, as an apostle, Paul could have just written a letter to the Philippians and said, uh, I'm praying for you. Um, I'm keeping Epaphroditus with me because I need him, and I'm pulling rank here. And it would have been better for Paul to do that. But instead, Paul sends Epaphroditus back so that he could encourage the Philippians and ease their troubled hearts. Commitment to love Jesus and to love the church sometimes mean that we send people and resources rather than hoarding them for ourselves. And in 2008, right in the middle of an economic recession, Bellingham Covenant Church voted unanimously to plant Lettered Streets Covenant Church. And they knew that that would mean sending quite a few really good leaders and financial givers in the midst of a really hard time. But they said, you know what? This is how we want to love our community. This is the commitment we have to the gospel. And so we're going to let people go in order to do that. And over the years... We've tried to follow suit. This church has released finances and families uh, and individuals to further the gospel, to plant churches, to see people move on vocationally, um, to, to, to follow their life in Christ where Christ leads. 
Now, Paul was genuinely sorrowful about sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi because he was his friend and he was his supporter. But our commitment to the church and to the gospel means that we'll be put in positions where giving hurts. In the final account of this passage, we can't help but see that Paul isn't just asking us to follow an ideal. He's encouraging us to follow him as he follows Jesus. It's Jesus who not only models what a life of flourishing can look like, but he also empowers us to live it out. And as we prepare to move toward the communion table together, I want to close this preaching moment with a practical application. And we're going to do this in two movements. The first one is I'm going to hold silence for us just between you and God to confess maybe your grumbling attitude or your self-righteousness. Where have, I, like I know I've been critical of, uh, maybe falsely critical, maybe assumed motives about other sisters and brothers in Christ. And um, maybe you have too. So let's take a few moments of science to confess those areas where we might be grumblers. Lord, hear our prayer. In this second movement, I'm going to again hold some silence for us to consider some things here. Um, maybe consider who you might need to seek forgiveness from. Maybe someone who doesn't even know you've been grumbling against them, or um, maybe you've thrown someone under the bus. But so consider that. Um, Maybe consider someone you, you need to lovingly confront rather than just grumble against other people. Um, maybe pray for courage to do that and tact to do that. Or maybe you're considering your, your baptismal vows that as something that you need to pick up again, that you had let slide that commitment not only to Jesus but to his people. Um, and then finally, if you're not following Jesus, which I'm glad like so many of us are on a, uh, on a journey, um, is there something you would want to say to him if you could trust him, you know? Is there something you'd want to say to him if you could trust him? So let, let's just take a few moments now to process some of those, those things.
Lord, thank you for um, not only rescuing us as individuals, but for putting us in community centered around your word and sacrament and spirit. Forgive us, Lord, for grumbling against you and against others. And give us courage, Lord, to walk out that forgiveness if we need to seek forgiveness from others or, or lovingly confront or take seriously our baptismal vows once again. Or simply to be honest with, with the blocks, with the hindrances that we have in trusting you. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is secure enough in yourself to handle all of those questions and all that we are. Amen.